Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. possible to get 3D printed food and you've probably seen molecular gastronomy pop up in your Facebook feed. But how will we eat in the future and how will we feed the world's ever-growing population? I'm joined by three knowledgeable people from AUT and I've asked them to tell us their favourite thing to cook or to eat. Um, I'm Owen Young, AUT University. Um, my favourite food to cook, or to eat rather, is probably one made by my wife. It's scalloped potatoes. It's, um, you've got to make it, scallop them, slice them all up, um, cook them slowly, and you've got to use whole cream milk. That's absolutely fundamental. And then you have parmesan cheese on the top, and then you put it in the oven and sort of give it death for, you know, half an hour or something and bring it out and have it with something else. Stunning. We're all going to finish this very hungry. I'm Karen Zim from... Sport and Recreation School at AUT, and I'm a dietitian. And my favourite dish would have to be, without a doubt, some sort of lamb. So probably lamb cutlets um, served on some kumara mash with some buttered asparagus when I can get it. And if there's no asparagus, there's got to be some sort of green there done with lots of butter, salt and pepper. I'm Tracy Bruno. I'm from the School of um, Culture and Society at AUT, and I would have to say my favourite food in the world, and my family would agree with this, popcorn with butter with Tabasco sauce through it. So don't judge. Try it. It's amazing. That sounds amazing. Yes, I'm not going to judge at all. That sounds excellent. Okay, so the interesting thing about that, um, Owen, is that you all mentioned things that are delicious, things that are tasty and have interesting textures and feel good to eat and would make you feel nice about eating them. (laughs) Is the future of food that, or is the future of the food some kind of pill that we pop in the morning and it gives us all the nutrients we need for the day and then we're done? No, I think the short answer for the pill is no. Uh, Look, we've had how many millions of hundreds of millions of years of cultural evolution. Are we going to um, throw away in a space of 20 years all that culture of eating together and enjoying the flavour of food? And we've got taste buds and flavour sensors in our nose, of course, that are just absolutely fundamental to satisfaction. If you people, if you have a, a, a what's called anosmia and you can't eat, you can't smell, your total enjoyment of food just goes right out the door. Um, you get a cold, you know, the food tastes tasteless because, and this is enjoyment of food is absolutely fundamental. That thing that you said about eating with other people, mm-hmm. eating is a, um, I'm going to throw this at Tracy, eating is a, a very social act, isn't it? Oh, it's incredibly social. We have something that we refer to as commensality, and it's the bringing of people together around the food. The food becomes the anchor, and you get more pleasure out of eating the food by sharing it with others. It's just absolutely integral to our experience of eating. And it's really one of the things that makes us different than animals. You know, animals, for example, feed, whereas humans eat. And it's that social element of it 
that turns feeding into eating. There is also, though, Tracy, I'm going to leave this with you, um, a lot of politics around food, the availability of food, the economics of food. We'll get into this in quite a lot of detail, but eating as well as social is political. Oh, food is incredibly political. Every decision you make about what you eat is a political decision. And I often tell my students, if you really want to control the world, control the food, because that's the one thing that all of us have to do. We have to eat and we have to drink. And if you control the production and the supply of that, you, in fact, control the world. So every decision we make feeds into that global system of food production and distribution. There has been an evolution, though, hasn't there, Karen, of eating for fuel, for sustenance. Uh, Someone was telling me a story the other day about uh, their parents' uh, cookbook their parents had, which had a recipe for cabbage, which was just uh, boil the cabbage for two hours, which I feel <laughs> yeah. like probably took all the nutrients it's out of the cabbage. old cookbook. But it was, yes, exactly. Yeah. But So it wasn't, it, it, it's always been for enjoyment. People have always uh, had enjoyment, but there was always a lot of sustenance to it as well. Has there been an evolution of that leading up to where we are now? You know, I think what is really interesting is that if we had to just eat for fuel, uh, we'd be in a lot better shape from um, a health perspective. And just going back to what Tracy said earlier about the social aspect of food and animals feeding and humans eating, I've never really thought about yeah, that. But likewise. just thinking about that mm. now, look at the state of animals. They, they're in good shape. Look at the state of humans. We're in not such good shape. And I think if we we fed on fuel, we'd probably be better because our social um, setting around eating, while it's great, it's also um, it's also our undoing for a lot of people who've got um, you know health goals and they are around food in, in a in a sometimes a very toxic environment that gets problematic. So I think the whole fuel versus other. Um, you know, there's lots to say about that, definitely. Well, so how, okay, what is, can you tell me, and uh, I think I know the answer to this, what is the ideal diet? Oh, my God. <laughs> how long have we got? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you know, summarising it in a couple of sentences, I'll have to say that the, the current guidelines are based upon um, a diet which is, is predominantly carbohydrate, healthy whole grains, uh, fruit and vegetables, moderate protein, low-ish fat with a, a, a low um, saturated fat emphasis. Um, I'm one of those uh, people in, in a group that thinks that we've got it all wrong. Um, and, it, you know, you might just look at our health statistics and agree, or you might say, no, it's just because people aren't sticking to those guidelines and they're eating fast food. I think a diet, is, the ideal diet is a diet that is based on whole food. Um, If you truly eat whole unprocessed foods, you're likely to eat a lower amount of total carbohydrate and better quality carbohydrate, and you're likely to have a higher, healthier fat um, intake. So we will go on fighting um, the, um, about the, the amount, the optimal amount of carbohydrate and the optimal amount of fat, but I, I think something that we all agree on, how it plays out is a little bit differently, but something that we all agree on is that um, 
sugar and processed carbs are nasty and we need to focus on eating whole unprocessed foods. One of the things I find quite interesting is some countries with their food pyramids, I'll use the term loosely, have moved towards including the social aspect of eating. Yeah, Yeah, because I think that's something that we've lost with current food trends. So, how does, so the food pyramid that we know on the bottom is fruits and vegetables and whole grains and blah, 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 and at the top is junk food and sugar and all those things. So how, how, how where does the social aspect fit in? Right at the base of it, right. that we're not meant to eat alone. We're not meant to be sitting in a car stuffing a processed burger in our face as we drive down the motorway on our own. We're meant to be sitting around with people sharing and enjoying food and having that sociocultural element. And reconnecting with people over the food because we've really lost that connection. And actually, we shouldn't be sitting in our car even eating healthy food. We shouldn't be eating in our car. You know, number one, um, you need to focus on your driving. But number two, I think we've lost lost touch with, with... with actually eating and enjoying and savouring the tastes of food. So that sort of ties into that, you know, social aspect. Mm. I'd like to weigh in on the uh, the processed food and the fast food uh, with some comments about the energy available in these foods. Now, the energy is if you've got lots of sugar in it, plenty, there's heaps of energy and, and so on. But more than that, if you care to look around all the fast food industries, without exception, all the foods are soft, S-O-F-T, soft. So like soft, soft mushy, in, 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 in terms of texture, yeah. in terms of texture, and it's the the valuable energy. You can measure the carbs and the calories and what have you, the kilojoules in in foods, but that's very very blunt chemistry because you realize you've got to chew it, you've got to digest it, and the, and the, the you know I can wolf down a, a McDonald's or a Wendy's, bang like that, it's gone, and the the amount of energy you get out of that is way way higher, or is higher than you would actually get out of what was Karen was saying about her, the more less processed foods. So it's a question of chopping the stuff up. And other words, the more it's finely divided and chopped up, and it can be reconstituted as a burger, you get much more energy out of it. And we don't need that much well, we, well, we don't. Plainly, we don't, because you see it on the streets every day. Um, it's not, not going to be ideal, that's for sure. But that's just a comment. And I'm not here to criticise the fast food industry. I'm just here to say that's, I think, reality. I can criticise the fast food industry if you like. You, you, go, for, you go right ahead, Karen. <laughs> well, let's come back to criticising the fast food industry. I want to come back to something Tracy said about the cultural aspects. And one of the things we're seeing in New Zealand now is uh, we had it in the in the recording of the the future of Auckland. Someone made the point that the great diversity of Auckland means that Auckland has the best takeaways. Her neighbourhood of Mount Roscoe has the best takeaways because it's a really ethnically diverse neighbourhood, as well as the the, the politics that economics of food, there's also huge cultural aspects and different ways that different cultures eat. Yes, there is. Big differences. We discussed this earlier. Yeah. 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 You, yeah. You, you elaborate on your, your Pacifica one. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just go back to the roots of gastronomy when Berlat Savarin, the philosopher who really founded contemporary gastronomy, said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. And it goes from the, the biophysical aspect of the food that you consume makes you physically who you are. But it also tells so much about your cultural background and who your um, who your tribe is, who to speak as uh, so to speak, and who your tribe isn't. It's a it's a marker of cultural identity, and it raises uh, to me fascinating questions in terms of New Zealand cuisine because Auckland is one of the most super diverse cities in the world. I believe it's fourth in terms of diversity, 
And that is now manifest through the food that's available. So what does that say about who we are? We've had a couple of series about this recently, about the New Zealand takeaway probably until the last maybe 20 years was, was fish and chips. The thing that we ate was fish and chips. Now it's ramen and it's dumplings and it's, you know, I, I used to, Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting when you ask people what New Zealand food is now, it really depends who you ask. True, but if you drill down to each of those foods, kebabs, uh, hamburgers, they've all generally got three things in common. The carbohydrate, the protein and some vegetables in one form or another to a greater or lesser extent and more or less processed. So we're still eating the same food, but we're eating in a culturally, I agree, in a culturally absolutely different way. Mm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's fast food and fast food. And actually, um, last night I popped into popped into farmers in the evening, actually, and went through that food court, court. there. And I saw, you know, I saw some sushi and I saw some um, kebabs. And I thought, and I looked at the price and I, you know, kebab was, was $10 and I was, I was going home my husband's away, so I was making my classic single dinner, which is halloumi cheese with a bunch of greens, and I worked out that actually that was going to be more expensive than um, than the fast food. And I thought, there are some fast foods that are actually okay. They, they really are. Um, but there are other fast foods, that, you know, the typical, the typical chain that we all know, um, that it, it's just not okay, the quality of food, the amount of processing that goes in. And I know, you know, moderation is a word I think we, we throw around too often. And if we truly had things in moderation, I'm sure we'd be fine. But we don't, and that's the reality of it. And you, you look at the um, the populations that are represented in the, health, in the health statistics, you look at Auckland, you've got South Auckland, look at the placement of all the fast food places. Carl's Jr., the first one that came to New Zealand, it strategically was placed in South Auckland. I've got so, to say, i got to say, I had a Carl's Jr. one. I was very impressed. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. No, it was really, the, really good. But you can absolutely see, Tracy, how if you are feeding a family and you have a f- limited income and to buy the fruits and the vegetables is expensive, to buy your halloumi and greens is more expensive than the local takeaway, people will... F- have the thing that they know their kids will eat and that is cheap. It's true, but this raises some interesting questions about the future of food. Um, As I said, I was at the food show yesterday, and I've got to say the trend was turmeric. Everything was turmeric. I was expecting non-animal protein because this is the big thing overseas at the moment. And um, one of the interesting questions it raises is, can this be used as an effective tool into the future to deal with sustainability and health issues for broad swathes of the population? Because at the moment, it's sort of considered an elite thing. You know, these these vegetable burgers that bleed and maybe the, the vegetarians and the vegans will like them. But what if we get plant protein into the likes of McDonald's? So it's it's kind of the, the the mass market equivalent of sneaking vegetables into your kids' food. Yes, and it addresses some non-communicable health issues, but it also addresses quite significant sustainability issues because we're moving away from animal-based protein and animal husbandry into agrarian practice around vegetables and plants to supply that part of the market. But where I come from, I'm heavily involved in the meat industry. I, I see, we see a huge demand for meat worldwide. So I don't, I'm not buying the fact that we're going to stop eating meat. I, I don't, I just don't see it. I, I mean, tell me wrong later, but Owen, you were wrong. But right now it's in it flavour and taste and texture. But if, if we can have the advances in technology that can make a vegetable protein 
taste like meat. Possibly, yes, indeed. And um, have the same sort Will of it have the same nutritional grilled. profile? Um, is the quantity of the proteins going to be the same? Um, certainly soy protein is used sometimes. Oh, it's a meat substitute. It's the same. Well, yeah, well, our, our dog for, at the moment, for example, it's off any kind of soy products. Uh, the quantity of the protein is not suiting her kidneys. And, and when you yeah. look at the health of soy, like there's there's some qu- question marks hanging over that as well. But I'd like to throw in um, what you mentioned, uh, well, what you potentially mentioned, um, cricket crickets eating crickets oh, yes. and um, eating insects yep. i mean yep. we we already know that there's some countries in the world that that do this um not too long ago i was sent a, a sample from some company with some cricket flour and i did some analysis on the amino acid profile which was just beautiful yes could be. absolutely beautiful um it is a strong flavor um what a, a strong flavour? Well, like a bitter, nutty flavour, and I think mm. you have to mix it with other, um, you know, if you wanted to get away from white flour and you wanted to cook a bread, which I did, I made a bread, and I used um, <clears throat> the cricket flour and I put some almond flour with it, and uh, and it was delicious, but I, I certainly think that eating insects and, you know, on a sustainability perspective, eating nose to tail, eating eating areas of the animal that we throw away at the moment, um, that should be, I don't know if it will be, but it should be the way of the future. I just spoke about the um, eating um, insects. Mm-hmm. When you think of prawns, uh, you know, people cheerfully eat the, the Ganexa skeleton. It's fundamentally not very, very different from eating a cricket. I was at a restaurant um, also in um, Victoria very recently and they had some, they had, it was an Aboriginal uh, foods and was ice cream at the end with ants in it, black ants. So paid good money to eat black ants. They're quite crunchy little fellows, <laughs> but I was—I don't. Well, really... in fact, I was listening to a podcast the other day where they ate uh, the infinite BBC Infinite Monkey Cage podcast, and they ate insects. They were talking about this, and they ate insects. And in fact, they told the audience who were also surrounding it, "Do not eat this if you're allergic to shellfish," because. It, it could have the similar yeah. allergy right. effects. Yeah. So they're not that. <laughs> no, not that different from what we are. We're quite used to eating that. It's all about it's all about perceptions. You know, why why is eating prawns okay but eating crickets not? Exactly. It's culture bound concepts. Yes. You know, yes. why do we um, why do we love dogs, wear cows and eat pigs? They are culture bound concepts <coughs> because some cultures and some religions yeah. do not eat pork or beef. Yeah. Some cultures eat dogs. I'd be mm. absolutely horrified to think that I'm gonna eat my Labradors. Yeah. But that's because I'm a Western European woman living in New Zealand who has cute Labradors. And then there's horse. Yes, there's horses. It's everywhere. Yes. And just hot the hot chips in the world are fried in horse fat. Yeah, yeah. and the, you know the vegetarian-vegan argument—they mm. have their own um, arguments because of you know cruelty to animals and all That's that right. kind yes. of stuff. Humanity and sustainability and yeah. all those things. Um, your bread, Karen. How long did it take you to make your cricket and almond flour bread? Oh, just it, just the same amount. Like threw threw a few things together. Uh, probably took about five minutes to. Bash together, throw it in the oven, 25 minutes, done. Cool. Low carbohydrate bread. Because <laughs> one of the things about sort of cooking and home cooking and especially sustainable cooking and growing your own vegetables, all those sorts of things. One of the, one of the Facebook comments we get all the time as Radio New Zealand is whenever we talk about diet or nutrition, people always say, well, just grow your own. And I always think, who has the time to do that? Well, perhaps if they were stop watching their Netflix, um, they might find the time. Or do them both at the same time. Yeah. But then, this just wind back to the cost of vegetables. I mean, you can go and buy in, uh, in Pack and Save in Hamilton, you can buy a, a bag, 10 kilos of onions. 
Let's just give the damn things away. Uh, it's it's hugely cheap. Man cannot subsist on onions. Well, no, no, no. It's just one part of it. And and a cabbage. I mean, I know there's 101 ways with cabbage, and let's. It's more difficult for. And we don't. We many of us lack the cooking skills. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and you can elaborate on that, please. Yeah, I was going to say. I don't. I think talking about the cost is sort of an easy opting out in terms of nutrition. It's really, to me, very much around food literacy that we've lost these fundamental skills and abilities. I mean, kids don't take home economics, as it was called when I was at school, or food science. And we have now, we're into second, third generation, where people simply don't know how to cook. And I'm talking about very fundamental cooking, like boiling pasta. People don't actually know what to do with it. And so they go to the shops and they buy something that's pre-prepared, or they go to the takeaway, simply because they lack the skills. They lack the skills. Yeah. And they also lack the skills to budget properly. So there is a, there's a term called food insecurity. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, that's a very real thing for a lot of people. But I think for a certain part of that population, it should be food priorities. Because they, there is a spend on certain things that are discretionary. And some people think that food is discretionary and it, it shouldn't be. I guess that's where the priority comes mm-hmm. in. So, you know, knowing how to budget, knowing how to cook, those two fundamentals, we're losing touch. Mm-hmm. We are. We absolutely are. I'm going to ask you a question that we had uh, just before we started recording. You announced, controversially, that it's okay to skip breakfast occasionally which is against everything I've ever heard about how you should eat, that, that breakfast was the most important meal of the day, blah, 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 blah. Well, I can weigh in on that one. The French don't think so. <laughs> I mean, the French, typical French breakfast is a bread, coffee, coffee and a bread roll. And, and the dinner, déjeuner, the, the middle meal of the day, traditionally was the most important meal. It's a bit like uh, you need eight glasses of eight litres of eight glasses of water a day. Hello, where'd no, that come from? behind that. Just another, yeah. another beat-up. I have to say, most of what I do nowadays with nutrition goes against everything that I've ever learned. So I, I'm not actually particularly worried when I come across something and it's um, and it's different to what what you know the, the dogma has taught me. Um, I, I, I'm beginning to realise that the whole breakfast is the most important meal of the day is a is an industry pushed message, yeah. um, and so is you've got to eat every two to three hours. Absolutely not. We don't need to eat every two or three hours at all. In in the old days, um, there was there was not food to be eaten every two to three hours, um, and we've survived perfectly well as a species. So um, you know, just bringing in you know the, the acad- academic side of things is an eno- not an enormous. There is a, a growing body of literature coming through showing that fasting um, or eating in restricted uh, time windows um, can be particularly beneficial for so many different conditions and potentially protective against certain nasty conditions. And I think it's something that we need to look at more. Um, it does, you know, I, I've got a, a, a practice and I do this with my clients and I, I self-experiment because I think that's what you have to do. And it really forces you to, um, to look at your relationship with food. It's really interesting. In terms of the two or three hours of eating it in that sort of way, the other, the other, um, what's the word for it? Ideas chucked around that every meal has to be balanced. Hello, um, you know, oh, that's a balanced lunch. Uh, you got a, a bit of apple and a bit of this and that, and there's no sugar and what have you, and the kid's happy. No, the kid's not happy. Um, in the old days, when you slaughtered an animal 
um, in the old days, I mean, eons ago, you didn't sit around and say after an hour, OK, guys, stop eating. We need some carbohydrates now. And, and uh, No, you ate the damn lot. And this gets back to your um, feast and famine in, in Pacifica. Um, can you elaborate on that one? That was, that was a fascinating story. Oh, we, uh, while we were waiting to come into the studio, we were just talking about uh, cultural aspects of food. And Owen raised a question around body composition and Pacific people and had suggested that one potential theory was because they were navigators and voyagers, that it was... Uh, in their best interest to feed quite heavily when they were traveling because they never knew where the next mm-hmm. next meal was coming from. And I said that the way that I had looked at it was a slight variation of that, that particularly within the Pacific Islands, which are very vulnerable to natural events, that it was almost a feast and famine situation, that although food is quite abundant in the islands, you just it needs a cyclone, which within 24 hours just clears out all of the food. So in an intergenerational uh, (laughs) survival capacity, it was in the best interest to eat when you can and bulk up because you never know where the next meal is really going to come from and how long it's going to be there for. And that this uh, eventually evolved into, and Karen popped in at this stage, and we were talking about a cultural appreciation for a larger body mass because it represents that ability to survive and for women in particular, the intergenerational reproduction, which is the survival of the entire society. So you can see how there's both physiological and cultural reasons for a particular body type to evolve over time. And then I threw in, is there a genetic component to this? And you said... Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> that wonderful academic yeah. response to everything. Possibly or it depends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Debatable. Debatable. Debatable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... Certainly, surely, if you're, do, do we not? Don't we know that if your if your parents are overweight or obese, you are much more likely to be? Is that is that true? But that's that can be genetic or it can be sociocultural Social. because uh, it's been pointed out on many occasions that a lot of overweight people have obese pets, and you could hardly say that that's genetic. Yeah. <laughs> but you can see how I've seen that too. Uh, the the it depends uh, thing. This is if if someone's not coming to your practice, Karen, and actually working with you with their life and their body and their particular health needs. If what you're reading is the headline on the website or Gwyneth Paltrow or or any of those things, you can see how for people this is confusing because there's so many conflicting messages about what's good for you and what's not good for you. Totally. I I was just I had a class with my students just before I came here, and I was saying that the the consumer is in a is in a tough position at the moment and um, there is a lot of confusion going on but amidst the confusion there is also um, very different ways that we access information these days so the internet is available to just about everyone um, and you're getting the informed consumer um, and self-experimentation and people are when they realize some system is not working for them they read stuff they try stuff and they figure it out for themselves. And if they need help, they, they ask for it. It's difficult for people who don't prioritise health. And, um, you know, we rely on the, the, the government to step in and, and tell us how to do that. But, you know, as a result, we, we've had things like the Pick the Tick National Heart Foundation um, 
food guidance system, which they've just abandoned because they've realized that it's nonsense because it never included sugar. Mm. We've got the health star rating, which is nonsense for a whole lot of other exactly. reasons. Yeah. Um, but, but people are going to the supermarket going, I need to be guided. Um, this is what I'll buy. And it, it's going to end badly. Mm. Five plus a day, is that? Still a reasonable thing? It is. I, I, okay, I think it's probably one of the only ones. You know, we, but isn't five plus a day, isn't it in the UK, isn't it eight plus a day? Or it's yeah, some it different varies, number? It well, varies um, internationally. Internationally, and yeah. how much you're going to serve. Yeah. yeah. We talked about home economics and the ability, uh, you know, people's knowledge of this. One of the other things I talked to about uh, to someone recently is people not knowing where their food comes from. So an entire generation of people who have never have never seen a farm or who have never been fishing. Or this isn't unique to this period. Industrial Revolution, that's when we saw the separation of food production in the cities and, and the, the fear of what, what, what it under my food st- was around then. Um, that was the and even pasteurisation of milk. That if you get the word today about irradiation of food and you scratch out the word irradiation and you put in pasteurisation, you could take yourself back, um, what, a, a time of Pasteur, to say well, that's, that was the same suspicion, exactly the same. Yeah. So there is that. So it's not just a recent phenomenon. Would would is part of the 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 way of the future uh, to connect people to where their food comes from? Well, I can tell you from the meat industry, that is a, a major uh, concern at the moment, to be able to say this this food came from that farm. But, of course, the, between the production and the consumer, there's a lot of error, uh, a lot of possibility for fraud, counterfeit, and so on. But there are ways to do it, and that's uh, an ab- one of the objectives of that particular industry, and I don't, I doubt, I'm suspecting for other industries as well. Mm. Provenance is the word we're after here, mm. provenance. I mean, so there's, there's, there's bespoke meat Bes- suppliers yeah. who, that will show you the actual cow that, you, that the, yeah. your steak Cause, came cause from. Some people don't want to see that. No, that's <laughs> it's quite gruesome. I think the general picture of a happy family, farming yeah. family, is more appealing. Yes. Uh, but no, that, that's an absolute um, focus for the food industry now to, to connect in a convincing and a, and a believable way. Yes. Have faith that you're eating what you claim to be eating. You mentioned turmeric. Mm-hmm. The food term. was that turmeric lattes and, and all that sort of thing. All of the above, yeah. mm-hmm. and so yeah. and is it being sold as a as a health product or a flavour product or both? A bit of both, I'd say. the The trend, at least at the food show, was that it's been pushed as a health product as opposed to a flavour product. Though I have to admit, my favourite turmeric product that I saw and that I brought home with me was turmeric ghee, and that was around both the flavour and the health properties. The, the term, my understanding of turmeric is that the the driver for this is the Indian avidura. If I get the, I never get the pronunciation right. Ayurvedic. Uh, that's the one. Um, the uh, but the idea is that the bladder cancer, for example, is very very low incidence in India, and it's been attributed to turmeric. And I think that is now sort of translated into if you want to live forever, you need some turmeric. Oh, those are correlation-based studies. Yeah, yeah. correlation-based right. study. I mean, you probably might die of something else in the meantime. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that seems to be the from, made the driver. 
Yeah, turmeric, from from my um, understanding, is is from an anti-inflammatory perspective, and yeah. there's some good research coming through to show that. But the reality is, and this is again where the research and the practice get a little bit muddled, um, you do need a certain amount of active turmeric, and typically it's bioavailable with black pepper. Um, so I'm not sure if the turmeric latte would have the the black pepper in, but I think some of these. Pro- this is where the absolute trend takes over. Mm, Someone yeah, hears the, the word turmeric, and then there's turmeric and everything and people people buy it and that that's a trend whether it's actually doing any therapeutic good um is is largely yeah. and this is also where the pseudoscience comes yeah. in well yeah. also what you yeah. can show in a test tube in vitro as they say in chemistry uh, what you can show in a test tube when you put it into the body hello uh, along with a thousand one other things going on what's going to happen there you, you just don't know that mm, yeah. i was just going to say a good example of that was kava a few years ago um in the States, they started started selling it in capsule form as a relaxant. And lo and behold, they found that it was causing some, uh, I think it was liver damage or kidney damage in some of the people taking it. And so they pulled it off of the market. And kava's been used in the Pacific for centuries. But no one takes it in a tablet or a capsule. Context. It's yeah, the context. Yeah. And there's sociocultural rules around the consumption of it. You don't just go into your bedroom and pop a couple of these things yeah. with a glass no, of water. It's, it's not at all. As I understand, you, you turn your back to the audience to drink uh, to drink your kava. And someone doles it out. And yes, if you're and having you a bit too and much. And there's a ceremony yeah. about mixing that's it. That's right. And, yeah. That's right. And that we're starting to see this with the turmeric because it ranges all the way from the turmeric lattes, which a lot of them do have pepper in them. Oh, good. Um, to turmeric capsules, which defeats the entire purpose. And it is this sort of pop pseudoscience where people think, well, it worked in this culture, so it must be good for me, so I'll pop down to the health food shop and buy a bottle of it. Is it going to be possible? We're going to finish with this question, and I'm going to start with you, Owen. Is it possible for science to produce us the perfect food? So it has good nutritional value, it's tasty, it has all the texture things that we like, we can eat it as part of a group, it fills us up, and it isn't bad for us? No. Oh, sweet. Okay, that was easy. Uh, Karen? We have eggs, don't we? (laughs) Excellent. Another short, good answer. Um, Tracy, you can answer that question, but also, would we want that? Personally, I wouldn't. I think diversity, and I hate to use a bit of a cliche, is the spice of life. And I think that that's actually a very good thing. My thanks to Professor Owen Young, Dr Karen Zinn and Dr Tracy Burno. Great Ideas is made in collaboration with AUT. Our sound engineer was Rangi Pawak and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find more great RNZ podcasts at rnz.co.nz on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your uh, whatever you're hungry for. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.